Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Monday, January the 23rd, 2023, uh, amidst another mass murder, mass shooting in America. It's hard to find optimists. I've gone out and looked for one, and I found one. My guest today has a new book out <laughs> called Words and Music, Confession of an Optimist by Stephen Rubin. And Steve is joining us from his apartment on his iPad in New York City. Steve, uh, are you the last optimist left in America? Hardly. Well, who else? Your wife, your kids, your friends? No wife, no kids. Um, plenty of optimists left. Um, I think it's, it's people like us who get everything done. I'm also an enthusiast. I'm horrible. So the book, uh, Steve, uh, Words of Music, would you call it, 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 it's out tomorrow, would you call it an, an autobiography? You call it a confession? Um, what do you confess? I, I would call it a memoir because I thought that nobody would give a crap about my life in the Bronx as a kid. So it's not at all personal. It's almost 100% professional. Uh, when it crosses over with my wife's career, she's now deceased, but uh, she, she was in, in classical music for a while. I was in classical music. When it crosses over, I discuss her. But other than that, there's nothing personal in it. It's just professional. Steve, you're a, to use a, a New York word, you're a, or you have been a maven, uh, a marker in the in the publishing business. Is this really what this book is about? When you look back at your life, if there's one industry that you believe you've shaped and has shaped you, is it the publishing business? No. I, uh, if, you, if, if you look back completely on my career, first of all, it's two careers. One career as a journalist, mostly writing about classical music, and the other career is as a publisher. So I think they both shaped both shaped me enormously. Uh, you say you began in in um, in classical music uh, as a journalist. Tell us a little bit. Not everyone watching or listening to this show will be familiar with Stephen Rubin. Tell us the overview of the Rubin life, Steve. What happened? <laughs> when were you born? And where were uh, you born? 1941, uh, the Bronx, New York. Uh, bratty kid. Mother said, have piano lessons. I said, no. No piano lessons. That's what everyone does. I want art lessons. And I didn't have a shred of a shred of talent for art. I surely had talent for music. The only thing I accomplished in art was a drawing of a piggy bank. Anyway, um, I started writing for the New York Times in 1971 as a freelancer. Uh, the greatest career move well, I ever between made. Between 1940 and 71. That's a, that's a long time to jump. I, I, I didn't know you wanted that stuff. All right. I went to... Um, I went, I, I, I was in college at, at NYU, where I was the uh, editor of the school newspaper, The Square Journal. I then went on to graduate school in Boston, the happiest year of my life. Um, nothing but college kids in Boston um, at BU. And I got a master's in journalism. Nobody needs a master's in journalism. It's a total waste of time. Um, then I got a job at United Press. Is that Press. why it was fun? That's because you didn't need the uh, degree? That was fun because nothing but college kids. It was great. I lived in a five-flight walk-up in Back Bay. It was just absolutely wonderful. Anyway, 
Then uh, I got a job at United Press International writing captions. And then I got offered a job at United Press International to run something called the Roto Service. The Roto Service was five uh, individually edited, photographed features for the Sunday Roto Gravure magazines. Boy, does that date me. Anyway, so um, I, I did that for a while. Then they closed down the Roto Service and they said, hang around, we'll get you a job. I said, what job? They said, no job. We're not sure yet. So I quit and I became a freelancer. And blessedly, I got, I made it, I got into the New York Times as a freelancer on a spec piece about the then director of the New York City Opera. And then I did a couple of other pieces. And um, ultimately, I did a piece on Pavarotti that sort of really set me going. And um, I remained there for 10 years. Uh, and the best thing that I ever did was to turn down their offer of a job because I don't think that would have been the right thing for me. I'd be underappreciated, underpaid, and probably still there and bored out of my mind and unpleasant. Steve, and I, yeah. Do you think, I know this is a hard question, but do you think that uh, there was a young Steve Rubin just out of NYU? Uh, there are young Steve Rubens, very different world, very different cultural environment. Do you think you could have got that job offer at the New York Times? I know your book suggests that there's a degree of what we might call political correctness now in our cultural industries, which isn't necessarily for the good. Sure isn't. But I don't understand the question. The question is, would you have been offered as a young white male a full-time job on the New York Times? Well, that's a great question, Andrew. Um, uh, probably not. I don't know. I was really good in this uh, on the classical music front. Well, I don't doubt you were really good, and I'm sure there are some versions of yourself these days who are really good. What yeah. were the problems back then? I mean, today people complain about uh, the way in which some minority groups perhaps are favoritized. Some people think that's wrong. Was the problem back then the reverse, that women, no, problem, people of minorities, is, had no chance? If if there were, I'm sure wasn't aware of it. Um, the problem it was a personal one for me. I just felt that I'd be sort of boxed in in the New York Times. And I, I hardly had a, I think I have a, a latent aggressiveness when it comes to my career. I, I never really planned any of this stuff. I just didn't feel it'd be right. And it took it took a lot of nerve to turn down the great gray New York Times. But I did. And I'm I'm not sorry at all. Steve, ironically, uh, ironically, later on in my career, I become the I became the publisher of Times books. Neither here nor there. Go ahead. You uh you must have had a great passion for classical music, as is reflected in the book. You note you met some of the the major figures in in the, in the tradition, opera singers, even Dmitry Shostakovich. What kind of taste did did or do you have in classical music? It's it's very diverse. Um, a dangerous word to use these days. Um, I, I I would say that I have a particular fondness for um, piano music, for um, symphonic music and probably most of all for operatic music and on those three areas i'm completely all over the place um i have a, a gigantic collection of, of cds and 
I have a place in London, a place in New York, and a place in Long Island, and I have CDs all over the place. And I have, I have, I have, I might have eight performances of one opera because that's what I love to do is to compare them. Um, so I, I'm I'm very open, including to contemporary pieces. You met Pavarotti, uh, another controversial figure. What was he like? He was adorable. He was like uh, an oversized whale. Um, he was so cute as a youngster, I can't tell you. He would say to me, Stiven, Stiven, outside may be fat, but inside is muscles, muscles. Uh, and then he turned into a monster at the end of his career. But I got him early on, and he was just fabulous. But But very very it was all it was all instinct he barely could read music his 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 um coach told me that he had to drum the roles into his head and um but he had this affinity for music that was so natural i mean his diction was crisp and clear and he knew how to how to phrase stuff and he was very careful about roles you know he hated traviata he says alfredo is stupid he hated faust because the character of Faust is, is, is second, is, is tertiary to the other people. He was very clever about what roles he wanted to do. And um, he had a very, very limited repertoire. But I got to tell you something. You, I, I, I rewatched um, a, a documentary on him. Just to be in the presence of that voice is so joyous, I can't tell you. It's just so beautiful. I just uh, reread Alec Ross's a uh, book on the history of 20th century classical music. Wonderful. The Rest of the Boys? Yeah. And, uh, it's I'm sure one of you the know. all-time great books. Yeah, it's a brilliant book. Um, and one of the characters I thought, maybe I'm wrong, who came out of it looking pretty awful was Pierre Boulet. You note in, in, your, uh, in, in, in the autobiography, Words of Music, that you came across him. Was he as awful as he sounds? Oh, no, not at all. I mean, I, he, was, he was utterly great. To interview. So first of all, I got to give you some context here. This was in the early 70s when he was the music director of the New York Philharmonic. He had had very little experience in conducting. And he, he, had he come there 25 years later, it would have been a success. But then he was really hated by the orchestra. And because, you know, I'm, aggress I'm an aggressive reporter, I found all these orchestral members who were willing to say horrible things about him. So this was for the New York Times magazine. And it was, it was really, it wasn't me saying that Boulez was horrible. It was the people in the orchestra. I loved him as an interviewer and he loved me until the piece came out Then he hated me. Uh, and the, Why, and, what did you say about him? Well, the, 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 <laughs> I, the headline did it all. And as you know, writers don't write headlines. Editors do. So the headline was the iceberg conductor. Yeah, that but did, writers always blame the editors for the headlines, but the headlines simply take the spirit of the piece. So it's yeah, not fair they, to blame the editor. No, in this case, I'm not blaming. I'm just citing that I didn't write that headline. They did. Um, and I, I got to tell you something. I love, he's really smart and, and very charming and fun. But um, he hated me after that piece. And all, basically, the piece did nothing but report how orchestra members hated him and why. Yeah, he sounds from the from the Ross book. He sounds pretty awful. What's yeah. your What's your feelings, um, Steve? And I'm sure you have strong ones on Schoenberg. How corrosive no, an influence that. did he have broadly on 20th century music? 
I think he had a great influence on 20th century music. And I love, love some of the earlier stuff. Um, but I don't love the very later stuff. No, not at all. Um, I think his, 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 he had a tremendous influence and I think it was short-lived. I don't think it mattered. He matters anymore. In the, he matters in the history of music, for sure. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've seen many performances of Moses and Aaron. It's a, it's a tough, it's a tough haul. It's a, <laughs> really is. Yeah. You, um, you, uh, you spent half your life or a lot of your life in music, classical music, as you say, a lot of your life in. Well, I still do it all the time now. I still do Right. It. I mean, if, if you'd have had a, a Schoenberg like figure in publishing who dominated and shaped all writing, do you think people would still be reading books? <laughs> you are a scream, Andrew. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I'm just that. I'm just channeling my inner Steve Rubin. Uh, <laughs> doing very well too. Um, I think that um, that no one person in books would have had that influence that Schoenberg had in in classical right. music. Yeah, it's amazing reading the Ross book, and you know I'm not next. That was one of the few one of the few great disappointments of my career in publishing. I was a chicken. The auction for that book got too high and I pulled out. I've never forgiven myself. Yeah, well, you have good reason. Great. It's That's a, a shameful, great... especially since you were a classical music guy. I mean, that should have been a no-brainer. Yeah, no, what I about didn't... Shostakovich, Steve? You met him. I mean, I'm not sure if he was a great man, but he was a great composer, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah, great composer. And at the time that I met him, he was he was old and, and a nervous wreck. He picked his hands like this. And instead of writing about a great composer, I wrote about his tics. And I'll never forgive myself for that. I was a total jerk. And I'm and my editor, who was a great editor, allowed me to publish that piece. And I, that, that's one of the few pieces I'm, I'm sort of ashamed of. Other than that, I'm not ashamed of any of them. I mean, we shouldn't expect our great composers to be great men, should we? I mean, Shostakovich's work reflects... Um... The inadequacies, shall we say, of humanity, they reflect him. So why would yeah, we but, expect him to not pick his ticks? But wait a second. But they also reflect the fact that the fucking, excuse my French, Soviets um, really had at him terribly, terribly. So I, I think, it, you know, he was he was he was done in by the Soviets more than anybody. And and then he just, he, as I said, he had all these ticks and all the music was great. Yeah, music was wonderful. And, and and again, but look just, at Mr. Wagner. Look at Mr. Wagner. Yeah, well, that's One another story. But human but, beings on Earth, and, and right? Um, coming back to the Ross book, I mean, he does underline the fact that New York in the fifties and sixties became the center of classical music, uh, minimalism, Steve Reich, and so on. Um, how exciting was it as a young writer, lover of music, to be in New York? those days as well, I, I was too young then the first well, even in the said, 70s it was still pretty yeah, in the exciting, 70s, wasn't it? it was still pretty good not as not not quite as dynamic it was fabulous listen new york new york can't be beat for music you know when i had my glorious year in boston i thought oh I, maybe i can live here well i couldn't live there you know you have one orchestra in new york you get 17 orchestras a month you know it's it's just it's just and there's an energy here although i actually prefer the energy of london yeah, for London, I think classical music is even better. But so let, let's talk about this great shift in your career. How did you manage to do it? How did you get from right, so music writing, to words? 
I was writing a, a syndicated publishing column. And one of my sources was then publisher at Simon, at, uh, I'm sorry, at Phantom Books called Jack Romanos. And he, and we knew each other professionally only. He took me out to lunch and offered me a job. And I said, good God, good for How you. old were you? How old were you? That was 1984. So uh, I was 40-something. So, um I said, I, I said, yeah, I, I'd like to give it a whirl. I was shocked by that, frankly. And um, then I had dinner with the person who I really have to work with, and we hit it off like gangbusters. So it was, it, it, he was really smart. He saw something in me I surely didn't see. And I took to publishing. I didn't miss journalism at all. I thought I'd be bored. I was never bored in publishing. It was, it was just wonderful. So it was dumb, sort of dumb luck. And then and then nine months after I got there, he left to go to Simon and Schuster, and she was promoted to his job, and she wanted to promote me to her job. And I said, "I'm nine months old. I don't know anything. No way." And then then she couldn't find anyone, so I became the editor in chief of Bantam Books at nine months old. Um, so that was very scary because I had a, a huge staff, like twenty some odd people reporting for me. But you know, there's something to be said for. You know, throw the guy into water and see if he can swim. So, were I you? Uh, I mean, you mentioned your love of opera. Were you a book guy? I mean, who are your favorite writers? Oh, I've always been a book guy. But I, I, as as a kid, I was always into bestsellers. So I was very much middle brow. The first book I ever there's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, 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 absolutely not. The first book I remember reading was the the City Boy by Herman Woke. Um, um, but then, then the more I the more I got into publishing, the more even though Bantam was was wildly, um, uh, you know, it was a popular house. Um, I I really started reading more more serious books than I read um, as a youngster. So I I would say my taste in books now, right now I I read almost ninety percent nonfiction. But occasionally I do read fiction and I love it. Uh, it depends on the fiction. Um, and I, lo I, I love political fiction, uh, nonfiction. Um, you know, having published Michael Wolf was was a great thrill because- The, the, the bad, yeah, the, uh, the, the Trump Michael Wolf. Yeah, the Fire and Fury. I mean, but that was the first book that really told us maybe there's a real problem with this guy. Um, anyway, so I, I love those kinds of books. Love, love, love them. And I love dealing with narrative journalists, and I do a lot of that. And um, but you know, I, I, I'm also I'm also very much um, attached to fiction. Uh, Sebastian Folks is a friend of mine and an author I published, and I hope to publish again. Um, and um, I'm all over the place a little bit. You published, of course, Grisham and Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code. Are you proud of that? Is that one of oh, your, you those your some of your greatest achievements. I assume your bosses were happy with you. Yeah, you bet. Um, Dan Brown, I, I perceive of as, even though I, I know him and still love him, he's a lovely man. Basically, I, I published one book of his. Admittedly, that was the book that made him. But uh, whereas John, I had a long relationship with. I didn't acquire John. I got to double and I had him but I was in charge of the publishing of it. Um, so I, I wouldn't say that Da Vinci Code was a defining moment of my career, 
I would say that publishing John for all those, I think I published about 23 books um, was thrilling. Um, but, but, you know, I, I'm just as, when I got to Henry Holt, I, I inherited Hillary Mantel and Paul Oster. Mm. What could be we just than- had Paul Oster on the show, actually. He's, uh, he's left Holt. Now he's at, um, he's at Morgan Entrican's Grove. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that because. He, Why? He, because Morgan Entrican's Grove is going to do better for him than, than, uh, the current Henry Holt. Well, that, a wonder- that, that, that doesn't guy. speak particularly well of the future of American publishing if one of the major publishing houses doesn't do a good job with one of America's great writers, does it? Well, maybe it's not a major publishing house. What, Henry Holt? No. I was thought you were going to say uh, Oster is not a major American writer, but he is. Major, Oster is, and, and I'm proud to say that I published the most successful book he wrote, one, two, three, four. Um, so... Um, uh, I just think the, the, the current state of, the, uh, of Henry Holt is not what it was. Um, so I'm delighted. Why, to hear- uh, excuse the dimness of, of this question, Steve. And there's nothing dim about you, Andrew. Well, you haven't heard this question yet. Um, why are there so many publishing houses? Why do we have Henry Holt? Most writers have no idea where it is or, or readers. Why can't they just get closed down and put into one publishing house? Because you want, because you need publishing is about is about passion, and and you need the different points of view and tastes of people. Um, I think that we definitely publish too many books, and maybe you could say that some of the publishing houses have too many imprints. But I think you want a you know a wide sense of uh, of tastes to be portrayed. I mean, um, I mean, I love the independent houses like like Morgan's House or or like I uh, like uh, Norton. Um, those are great houses. Um, but then again, some of the corporate houses, like, you know, I'm currently working for Simon and Schuster. It's a spectacular operation, just spectacular. What do you make of the Justice Department's um, successful... Oh, I, thought the thing, I thought the whole thing was a lot of hooey. Um, just to be clear, the Justice decisions uh, not allowing, the Justice Department not allowing uh, Bertelsmann uh, to buy uh, Simon and Schuster, random round. Right. Yeah, correct. Uh, for ridiculous reasons, um, I think that that uh, since since Paramount, the the um, parent company of Simon and Schuster, is determined to sell it because it's not part of their core stuff, um, uh, it'll be sold. My guess is, publishing houses like Harper Collins or Hachette, which would be the two obvious people to bid, might be frightened to bid, or worse, Paramount might be frightened to accept their bid for fear that the Justice Department will do something horrible. So my guess is it will be sold to venture capitalists money unless some European person gallops in on a white horse. Steve, you don't seem to be someone with a lot of regrets, but do you have any, particularly in terms of your career in publishing? Did you get the internet, for example, early enough? Yeah. I, I have a tremendous regret. Um, when uh, the former uh, now deposed head of Penguin Random House, Marcus Dola, yeah. uh, had the bird brain, bird brain scheme of putting Doubleday and um, Knopf together, uh, I essentially was out of a job, even though they tried everywhere and 
in their power to keep me, including, you know, a, a very, a very uh, generous salary, although nowhere near as generous as what they had paid me before. Anyway, I tried for nine months. I would tell you honestly that that was the only nine months, only time in my entire career in publishing or anywhere where I was seriously unhappy. What uh, years were, were they? Um, uh, I think eight, uh, I think uh, 2008, 2009, something like that. So, so basically it came down to, it came down to independence. When I was running Doubleday very successfully, um, I could do whatever I wanted. And now in this new job as publisher at large, I had to go to the heads of Knopf, Random House and Crown to get anything done. And it just, it just, it just was very demoralizing, very demoralizing, even though I did, my, the last thing I acquired for Random House was the memoirs of George W. Bush. Now that surely did not make me a very popular person, but it's, they, they sold 3 million copies. So that was okay. I never would have thought that. So I thought they would sell a couple million, but not three. Um, and uh, he was a joy to work with, by the way. Um, and um, so I was, I was miserable. I was, I was, I, I used to close my door and go shopping on the internet. So all, all of this, I'm supposed to be plugging my book. All of this is recounted in my book. Um, so uh, but don't give all the secrets away, Steve. Otherwise, no, no one will read the book or buy the no, book. Even more important. No, no. Absolutely not. Uh, so I was miserable for nine for nine months, and and then um, then and I what's a talking. what's a miserable Stephen Rubin like? Uh, bad tempered, solitary. No, I, I'm very rarely bad tempered, and I'm 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 very very depressed. But I think I was pretty close to being depressed there because I just didn't feel. First of all, they had me on the executive floor. I had a gorgeous office. Who gave a shit? I mean, it was just it was just so. I just felt alone. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm. Publishing is a, is a, is a, an endeavor that's done with teams, and I, I missed all that. So uh, even though I was in charge of some authors like Grisham, but, but still, uh, the, the, the publisher Knopf had to approve the jackets. I couldn't believe it. I think both of us were a little bit embarrassed by that, but nevertheless, we did the best we could. It was just demeaning. Anyway, I finally, I finally said to him, "I'm leaving." And he said, you must stay, write a book, do anything. You this want. is Marcus Dolman. He just quit yeah. too, right? He did. I think he was, he said, they say he quit, but I think he was uh, asked to leave um, as well. He should have given the fact that he cost them 200 million for nothing. You know, he had, <laughs> there, there was a kill fee in that, in that deal of 200 yeah. million. If it didn't work. That, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Anyway, um, I said to Marcus, what are you afraid of? Bad press? He said, yeah. I said, I'm not going to trash you. And I never did, except now. Um, so um, yeah, we parted amicably and I got a gigantic payout. Oh, God, I got so much money from them. I, actually I mean, what, what is a giant, gigantic payout in publishing? Uh, in, the, in the tens of millions of dollars? <laughs> no, two years worth of salary in one lump sum. That's pretty good. So, so that's what, about uh, $100,000? I'm not going to fall for your evil questioning <laughs> um uh no no it was um it, it was a sizable amount of money in one lump sum do you think that in all seriousness steve it's one of the problems with the publishing business these days is that only wealthy kids can actually get into it because they're the only ones who can afford to live in new york on 20 or twenty-five thousand dollars a year 
Yeah, no, no. I, I think that's part of the problem. First of all, they, they never live in New York. They live in Brooklyn or Queens uh, and they split apartments. And, um, you know, every one of us, all the big publishers have fought to raise the entry level and we've succeeded. Uh, I, I'm not up to date about what, what it is now, but every every single one of the houses has increased it. And you're wrong. It's not just wealthy white kids who who are there. I mean, especially now, because there's such an emphasis on diversity. Um, but yeah, it's a real challenge to live on, let's say, $35,000 a year, especially in a big city like New York. But you don't live in New York, you live in Brooklyn or in Queens. Steve, I saw a headline around your book in the London Daily Telegraph, a very conservative newspaper, suggesting, interpreting your book, you may not have formally written it, but their headline writers wrote it, that these days you wouldn't have been able to publish Grisham because he's a white male. Is that what you suggest in the book? First of all, they didn't say that. I didn't say that. They didn't say that. They said they said that you that that I that that I they quoted me as saying that a lot of publishers are ticking all the boxes for diversity, and in so doing, in so over subscribing to being diverse, to publishing people of color, to publishing gays, that they actually have ironically become not diverse because so many of their books are that. I, I'm not sure it would stop. John Grisham, but it might remember when John Grisham, when John Grisham's book, The Firm, was published in 1991, he'd written one other book called A Painted House. Every publisher in New York, he went alphabetically, he rejected it except Wyndham Press. So he was at W already. They published that book. So he was basically a nobody at that point. My question is, Will publishers take a chance on these nobodies? I think less and less is all I'm saying. I'm not saying they won't, but I think they less and less. They're much more dependent on on spare or on uh, the Obamas because they're automatic guaranteed bestsellers, or they're or they're dependent on their repeat bestsellers, including Mr. Grisham. Steve, are you surprised that the book has survived? There were a lot of obituaries, all wrong, of course, 20, 25 years ago when uh, the internet broke. But it seems as if, in, in terms of all um, formats, the book has done very well. People love the book. And if anything, books are selling, well, they certainly were selling better in COVID, and they're still not doing too bad, especially compared to CDs and, and other formats. I'm not surprised at all because. You know, when everyone says that that the old ebook is going to kill the print book, I said bullshit. Um, and I never, I never subscribed to any of that. Here's the point: people like the tactical, feel, tactile feeling of a book. I like it. I bet you like it. I and, do love it. Yeah, I love it. I love it. And you know what? And you can write in it, and you can, you can do anything you want. And you know what? I think a lot of people actually prefer hardcover books because they have more durability. And um, you know, particularly, you know, a 600 page word of a book of history. I don't want to read that in the paperback. I surely don't want to read it on an ebook. So I think, yeah, I think books are doing great. I'm not surprised at all. No, no. But remember, I'm Mr. Optimist. You are Mr. Optimist. I still haven't found anything for you to be miserable about. Um, what about the internet these days? Um, Steve, well, my, uh, this this interview is going to go out on LitHub, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, an online yeah. magazine, uh, social media platform. 
dedicated to books. Ha has the publishing industry done a good job in terms broadly of the internet? Um, my publicist, who's really good, tells me that um, the only thing that matters now is social media. Um, you know, think that's old. true, though? I think uh, that's degree. what a publicist would say because that's what they're paid to say. No, 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 no. She, she's been doing this for too long. I've, I've known her since I was a kid at Bantam. So no, no, she's great. And she would never book. No, uh, I think that I think that's one part of it. Yeah, I think you really can't do anything without the internet anymore. I know it's the only thing. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, Oster, when I had him on the show, he doesn't even have a cell phone. He doesn't even know how to use the internet. And he still he, seems oh, to survive. Paul is a scream. He doesn't have email. Right. You had to send him you. <laughs> And I had Pico Iyer on the show recently too. He doesn't have email or a cell phone either. I guess the the younger versions of us Oster do. But in all seriousness, you have people, um, Steve. You know, with hundreds of thousands, millions of Twitter followers, for example, yeah. they signed book deals. I know some of them. They didn't sell any books. How do you, in your sense, how do you use social media, for example, to sell words and music? I mean, even if you uh, had a million followers on Twitter that you don't, how would you convince people on Twitter to buy your book? On Twitter, because I'm not on Twitter. Um, so I think, um, I think in my case, the, the only way to sell my book is to make people aware of it and then make people hear all the marvelous, wonderful things that are in it, and then maybe they would buy it. Uh, like tomorrow, there's going to be an excerpt from it on Publishers Lunch. Um, very uh, nice, interesting excerpt. Um, uh, and um, I hope and pray that's going to help. Uh, you need to get the word out, the old-fashioned way and the new-fashioned way. I think it's a combination of both, particularly for my audience, who isn't exactly young. Well, I hope you'll have some young readers. Don't you think that? Oh, absolutely. I think it would be a great education for them. I don't know if they have any interest. Luckily, the book is short, so who knows? Well, do you suggest that young people don't, don't read anything long? No, no. I'm... <laughs> God, you're impossible. No, I suggest that being short is more attractive to people young and old. I think everything, every movie I see is, is 20 minutes too long. So every book that I publish i've always begged them to cut it so yeah I, I, shorter is better not in any way to mess up the integrity of the book but yes. any chance steve of a third career maybe in the in the movie business you've been in no, books and journalism no no uh diane frostenberg once told barry diller that i could run a studio and when <laughs> barry diller asked me about that i said she's totally wrong so i couldn't run a studio if my head was i mean no way nor do i want to Probably you run the studio better than the people who do, investing $100 million in Babylon. Finally, Steve, if this doesn't make you miserable, nothing will. What about the latest um, mania in Silicon Valley for AI chatbots, chat GPT? I know you're not a big tech guy, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, uh, technology a, that allows... Give me a break. No way. No way. No way. I just, I just turned the page. I just don't deal. Well, I just had a doctor who suggests that it's going to transform the medical industry. Why shouldn't it transform publishing? I don't think I mean, most will. books, as you know, aren't very good. Most writers aren't particularly good. Why can't the machines do their work for them? Um, because I don't believe that they can do that kind of creativity. Never. I, I don't. I don't know enough about it. Um, I. I would say that surely, not 
take 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 the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. One of the books I'm most proud of by having published. It's such an original story, and you're in the mind of a uh, kid on with Asperger's. There's no way they could do that kind of creativity. They can check a lot of the boxes for a, a murder th a thriller or some kind of other book, a romance, but I don't think they can do real. So they literature. may not be able to do bestsellers, but for the that that's a brilliant book, incredibly original. But for the other 99 books out of 100 that aren't original, AI can do the, the work for them. Well, first of all, I beg to differ with you that the number is probably 85 out of 100 that aren't original. Uh, maybe you're right. I don't know. But they definitely can't do the 15% the, the other kind. And in the same way, in the same way that everybody predicting, you know, the death of books, it's not going to happen. So I haven't convinced you, Steve, to be miserable. Well, I'm, I'm an optimist, remember? And an enthusiast. 